Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Ascension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. I call my way of combat strategy Nite Nichiryu, this being the beginning of the 10th month of Kanai. I have climbed up Mount Iwato in the province of Higo in Kyushu. I paid homage to heaven, made a pilgrimage to Kanon, and faced the altar as I contemplate writing down for the first time the culmination of what I have learned over many years of austere training. A warrior of Harima, my name is Shinmen Musashi no Kami Fujiwara no Genshin. I am 60 years old. I have devoted myself to studying the discipline of combat strategy since I was young. I experienced my first mortal contest at 13 when I struck down an adherent of the Shito Ryu named Arimi Kihei. At 16, I defeated a strong warrior named Akiyama from the province of Tajima. At 21, I ventured to the capital of Kyoto, where I encountered many of the best swordsmen in the realm. Facing off in numerous life and death matches, I never once failed to seize victory. After I trekked through the provinces to challenge swordsmen of various systems and remain undefeated in over 60 contests, this all took place between the ages of 13 and 28 or 29. This passage here is from Musashi, Miyamoto Musashi's Book of Five Rings. It's a widely popular passage, often cited nowadays. As it has come to be a historical justification for the importance of competition and by extension the utilization of what has come to be called pressure testing of one's martial art. The translation I'm using here is the one recently published by Alex Bennett. I highly recommend it. In my opinion, having read Every English translation of the Book of Five Rings, this is by far the best. By far. And I'll put a link in the episode description. I cannot recommend it highly enough. The interesting part about this passage and how it has gone on in our present time to justify competition is the silence 
that ends with the age of 28 or 29. This passage is quoted as if Musashi did not continue speaking on the matter, when in fact he very much did so, and what follows is actually at the heart of why the entire treatise was written by him. I find it to be very relevant because one, the obvious reason is that O-sensei, the founder of Aikido, was not so much a advocate or a fan of the utilization of competition. And in fact, he had almost an opposite position that competition can be detrimental to one's advancement in the art. And two, I'm interested in what follows that this often quoted passage from the point of view of reason, the application of logic, and of sound reflection, which is very much a part, or should be very much a part of one's own practice. You can't just follow the crowd. You can't just swallow the institutional inertia of your era. And I would go so far as to say that when you see the crowd and you hear the crowd's chants, you can save time and turn and look the other way. That might seem extreme, but it's an extension of a very simple, easy to understand reasoning. The highly cultivated warrior is an exception. He or she is the antithesis of the masses because the masses are a state of zero cultivation. The masses are what they are, and that is the end. The whole point of cultivation is to separate oneself from one's given state, meaning training is about difference And the only way that the warrior can be thought of as being in unison with the masses is if the masses have themselves done this cultivation, this seeking of their full potential. And we know it's not true. as any person on the path knows how difficult it is to continue treading upon it. 
And that in the end, it is an often lonely journey. That experience tells you that most people quit. Most people half-ass it. Most people put some arbitrary ceiling on their progress. Most people cannot make the sacrifices, cannot hold true to the discipline required. Most people compromise and fall prey to convenience. And that that is the way of the masses. And that way is not the warrior's way. So by extension, it is not a completely unsound or irrational practice to look and see at what everyone is saying is true and then to doubt it. And I think that case is made here if you continue reading the Book of Five Rings, starting with the very next line. Back to the piece. After turning 30, I reminisced on past experiences and realized that my success could not be credited to a true mastery of strategy. Could my triumphs have been attributed to an innate ability in the way of combat strategy that kept me from straying from heavenly principles? Or was it due to flaws in the other schools of swordsmanship that I encountered? Thereafter, I studied zealously morning to night in a quest to discover the deepest principles. I was about 50 when I realized the real meaning of the way of combat strategy. Since then, I have spent my days not needing to seek anymore. Having attained the essence of the way of combat strategy, I practiced the disciplines of many arts without the need of a teacher in any of them. Let's go into this. So at 29, let's take his oldest, the oldest age he gave, he said he realized that his victories, which at one time gave him some sort of justification in his belief, his subjective impression of himself, that his insights into combat strategy were sound. But he did not stop there, obviously, and he raised for himself the obvious point, let's, let, which is this. 
Is, is his victory a, a sign? Is it evidence of sound combat strategic insight and application? Or could there be other reasons for his victory? And if there were, by what means could he tell one from the other? In essence, Musashi applied scientific reasoning to his own self-reflection. He is investigating into the very structures of evidence and causation. And rightly so, he posits to opposing but equally plausible reasons. One, his victory was based upon his training and his insights. Or two, his victory was based upon the inferiority or the lack of insight into combat strategy in his opponents. In other words, he's doubting, rightly so, whether his opponents are able to stand up as evidence or not. The assumption was in in the competition, this is what he reveals to himself. He, in his reflections, digs deeper into his own training, which is really the model to follow here. But he digs deeper into his own training assumptions and realizes that the unsaid assumption is that his opponent is actually capable of marking whether he has sound combat strategy or not. Is he truly, by said victory, the largest fish in the sea? Or is he just the largest fish in a very small pond? In other words, he goes on even to problematize his first premise that I, my victories were a result of my insights into combat strategy. He goes on to make a problem of that by saying, but is that a product of my natural inclinations, my nature, or is it actually a product of my cultivation, of my studying? Because if it's the former, it is definitely subverting the very process of training. Because it limits us. 
if if our victories are based upon a coincidence of natural states, then victory is not really in our hands. It is in the hands of fate. And when you put something in the hands of fate, by extension, you negate the very foundation of training, which holds the idea that one's fate is in one's own hands. So he studies, he raises this problem for himself, and he continues to study, and as he's continuing to study, he does not continue to use the competition model. Again, this is a sound application of scientific principle. You cannot use the device which itself is under question to determine the validity of said device. And from 29 to 50, he studies. And at 50 is when he says he realizes the truth, the heart of the way of combat strategy. This section, therefore, changes radically the first section, the often quoted section. Meaning, Musashi is basically telling us that his 60 duels did not lead him to the core of truth but that the following reflection period following those duels, a reflection period no longer made up of duels, in fact did. I think then, as Musashi was, as we all are, people of our ages, of our cultures, Musashi is some sort of testament that there was in Japan and likely still is some appreciation for competition. But there also is, as Budo is being developed, a sincere and very reasonable understanding that there are limitations to what can be done via competition 
and that in fact, in order to reach the higher levels of Budo, one has to move beyond it. And this is held to be the case because no amount of competitors can bring to the experiment a total and universal objective metric. That every time you have a concrete experiment, so to speak, within a live training environment, the causal factors are so numerous and so equally potent and valid that victory can be gained by means having nothing to do with sound martial tactic principle strategy or with even insight into such things. I think this is why warriors throughout history, people, men and women, who enter into the arena of potential personal extinction, an arena made and marked by irreversibility and finality, will often acknowledge the fact, unlike the masses, that anyone can be killed by anyone. And that the best we can ever do with our insights and our training and our conditioning is to increase the odds so as to lessen our own defeat. And I think when you're faced with that truth, you start to realize that victory or defeat is really a poor marker for one's progress in the art. And so I think you have this second idea in the formation of Budo, this one that there are limits to competition. There are limits to what is being revealed. That a victory in a competition does not at all mean all the things we want to say it does.
we have this process in the military and in law enforcement. It's a process of debrief. And it's supposed to, in some ways, reproduce what Musashi's doing here in the introduction to the Book of Five Rings. It is supposed to be a reflection upon what worked and what did not work within a given operation. And as such, it does look to address and identify causes. And having attended many of these debriefs, there's a common theme. It's a, a veering of what is supposed to happen because the debrief is supposed to be as honest as the one as you see here in Musashi. But it often, often is not the case. A debrief is supposed to be an application of critical philosophy. But this raises issues in whether one understands critical philosophy and or how to employ it. The assumption is you can, you do, but such is often not the case. And critical thinking is therefore often absent from such debriefs. And these debriefs then degrade into not an effort to identify causal relationships, but almost self-patting on the back. A debrief is different from the act of congratulating ourselves. It's also different from identifying what worked. I mean, you have to go beyond that. You have to go beyond to where you see the reasons why it worked. So we did a, I'll give you some examples of this. We recently had a kind of um, simunitions ambush training in our department. This is what is called force-on-force force training. It is a very good component of training. It is necessary. In essence, it is a 
kind of live training environment. It is a kind of sparring, so to speak, and therefore it is a kind of competition. And simunitions is a technology used in the military and in law enforcement where you have a kind of marking bullet or projectile and you are, through this technology, allowed to use weapons either of your own kind. So let's say you're carrying a SIG P320. They'll have a simulation version of that. It feels, looks like, runs exactly like the standard P320, but it is designed to fire these marking cartridges. For those that do paintball, it's something close to that, only way more accurate and way more painful when you get hit. So in one scenario, we have you um, get a call there's some sort of domestic violence incident happening upstairs in one of the apartments. And we have these kind of very realistic apartment setups so that everything is as close to reality as you can get it. This is, this is what people try to do with competition. This is the point of competition because there are some things that as you control an environment, as you idealize it and in that very act of idealizing it, you take out the fog of war. the unknown and the unknowable. And that's a problem because oftentimes it, it, the fog of war is why we lose, why we are defeated, why victory is taken from our grasp, and why we die. As you universalize things in this effort to control, you also take away the individuality, which is also unknowable and unknown in the opponent. So, for example, when you do Kihon Waza, Because Nagya has a prescribed pattern to do, so does Uke. They don't mix it up. Which means then in Kihonwaza, the Nagya requires absolutely no skill in Fudoshin 
or even in the reconciliation of fear. And these two things are paramount to in life, real life applications. Moreover, the conditioning of Naga is made irrelevant as the amount of force employed by Uke is controlled with some sort of unsaid ceiling. And you do this for the purposes of creating an ideal learning environment. No doubt that is precisely what you're doing and no doubt that is very much an important part of training and in cultivating oneself. But equally no doubt The absence of this fog of war and the particular individuality of the opponent are hugely determinable in real life to the point that a perfectly idealized application may not be enough. So when we set up this simunitions training, we want it to be as real as possible. So you don't know what you have. You're just told, as you would be in real life, there's a domestic dispute. We get those calls all the time. Statistically, we know they are very dangerous calls. They're always in the top rankings for calls where officers are feloniously murdered. We also know statistically that both the victim and the suspect are equally dangerous to the law enforcement officer, meaning the victim has in many cases turned around and murdered the law enforcement officer as their spouse was about to be arrested and taken to jail. This is something like you're going, you know there's an alley where you live and there's lots of muggings down that alley and everyone in the neighborhood knows it. Okay, you have a call, now you're going down that alley. Or you're in the military and you know where it's hot and your mission is in that valley, that area. This is the same thing. You get that call and you know your odds of coming out alive are being reduced. So they make it one of the training scenarios. And it's a nightmare because it's upstairs. 
So you already have poor footing for maneuverability and fighting. You already forfeited the higher ground. Your ability for clearing the line of attack is greatly reduced. You not only have the risk brought about by the felonious sus suspect, but you also have the potential in your deviation or your redeployment of falling to your death or severe injury. Stairwells are hell. And at the top of these stairs, there's three apartment doors, which is also very common. They're right next to each other. And what you have learned statistically is you don't stand in front of doorways. Doorways allow for a more immediate violence of action upon or by the felon. Doorways are called the fatal funnel in the military and in law enforcement. Doorways are death. But you have to knock on this door. And even though the incident is said to be happening in apartment A, you're standing in front of apartment B's door and apartment C's door. And you don't know what's behind those doors. You only know... that if it's hostile, it's probably going to reach you before you can do anything about it. So there's all this unknown, just as if you were standing across a ring or a mat. From an opponent that you've never seen and you don't know anything about. Only the stakes are much higher. So you try to knock on the door because you want, you don't know the apartment and it is just proven it's a valid tactic is to get them to come out of the apartment to where you are because where you are, you might even get them to come down the stairs so you can get away from that inferior positioning. You don't have to worry about where are weapons hidden in the apartment. You don't have to worry about the fact that they know the apartment better than you do, so they have an, a tactical advantage there. So you knock on the door and you try to get them to come out to you to where you can start regaining some of the advantage you lost due to the nature of the service and the call. In a one-on-one -on -one competition, this is something akin to you know where your strengths and weaknesses are and you want to employ a strategy and tactic paradigm wherein you get that person, your opponent, to fall into your game plan.
You're trying to reduce the fog of war. Well, the trainers know that the good officers are going to do this. They're not going to kick the door down and go in. It's not like the movies because the movies are fake. It's not like the beliefs of the masses because there's no way they can be right. They're the masses. And since law enforcement pulls from the masses, then your younger deputies, whether they know it or not, are influenced by the fictions produced by Hollywood and the news media. And again, it's no different in the military. You're the boot or you're the cherry precisely because you don't have experience. You just have stories. Stories that themselves are not real. So the trainers know there's going to be those law enforcement officers that go right in, no problem. And they make them pay. Because you have no tactical advantage. You're reduced to your athleticism. And athleticism in weapons fighting plays a much smaller role than it does in unarmed fighting. Can actually be reduced to zero. Zero affect. So those officers that go right into the door because no one's answering the door, they got a call for domestic, they know there's a victim in there, and they go right in, they just get killed right away. In essence, they're walking into an ambush. But for those officers that understand the fog of war, they know how to navigate it by having a game and trying to manipulate the situation into the game that they have set out that works for them, that reduces the odds of their defeat and their death, and that increases the odds of them coming out alive and doing their job by helping this victim. They're not going to go in. They're only going to go in under certain conditions. And one of them is hostage rescue. So a good law enforcement officer knocks on the door. There's no way you can get out of that stairwell, that fatal funnel. There's, it's just you have to do it now. No one answers the door. You hear yelling. No one's answering the door. You make an announcement. You announce your agency, who you are. 
You're trying to get them to come to the door. They're not coming to the door. Then you start hearing the suspect utter threats or the victim describing the violence being committed upon their person. Or you hear it. You hear the smacking. You hear the bodies crashing into furniture and into the walls. Maybe you hear the gunshot. And now you're in hostage rescue. And via your job and your oath of office, via your calling, you're going in. Because at this point, your life and its association to the strategic victory has now been loosened. Meaning, your death might still achieve a strategic victory because the so-called victory you're looking for is the saving of the hostage's life, of the victim's life. So you open the door and you go in and immediately you see down the hallway and to your left there's a door. It goes to another room of some kind. But you can't tell. Is it a kitchen? Is it a closet? Is it a bathroom? Is it a bedroom? And as you look down the hallway you can see that the house breaks right in its architecture, opens up to a larger room. You know from experience, likely it's a family room or a living room. You hear the fight moving. Deeper into the living room, the family room area there breaking to the right starting to go down the hallway. You know it's a hallway because you can hear the fight getting more distant. Now everything in your body, if you were able to get through that threshold of that first doorway, and that's a big if. Everything in your body is telling you, follow the fight right. You can't see it. And you don't know what you're walking into. But you do know if you're dead, before you even get there, You didn't do your job. And you know if you turn right, 
you're going to have an open door with an unchecked room behind you. And this place is filled with the fog of war. Because it's not like the movies. There's no lighting to tell you who's bad and who's good, where they are, what their intentions are. There's no music that's going to sound off. To let you know who's bad and who's good. And there's no costume department. That marks the threats. In the fog of war. There are no fronts. It's not like a video game where you keep moving forward and you know what's behind you is no longer in play. In real life, it's a 360 degree threat environment. And the bad guys and the good guys are all dressed the same. So you got to clear that room to, to your rear, to your soon-to-be rear. And if you're good, you're doing it with your partner at the same time that they're clearing right. You employ a kind of blocking technique. And the blocking technique lets you know exactly what a shit show you're in because in essence you and your partner are acting as meat shields for each other. Meaning as my partner's clearing right and I'm clearing left with my back to any threat that comes from the right, my partner is not going to move from being out in front of me. And they're going to fight. And keep me to their rear. So I don't get shot in the back. They get shot in the chest. And again... When the shooting starts, the level of that discipline, of that self-detachment, of that acceptance is profound. And what you see in the masses is once the shooting starts, the egocentrism is so powerful that they start to scramble. They stop blocking. 
and they let their partner get shot in the back, the back of the head, and killed. Now, if you go right and you're not clearing that room to the left, and you make it around that right corner and you engage the suspect who does have a knife on the hostage, and you neutralize that threat, and you save the hostage. without critical thinking, without a very honest and sincere debrief, you will see a tendency to say, we did it. We made it. We won. Hostage is safe. We're safe. We didn't. But if you employ critical thinking... In the debrief, and you're looking for causes, you're going to have a different outcome, a different assessment. You're going to say, the victory you have achieved was dependent entirely upon there being no threat coming out of that room on your left. The victory you achieved was dependent upon there being a single suspect. And all this means that your victory had nothing to do with your skill or your insights, that your victory was actually dependent upon a coincidence of happenstance. Your victory was based upon luck. And luck is not a strategy. And luck is not insight into combat. So in a good debrief, where the point is, how do I do this better the next time? You're not going to feel like you won. You're going to realize it was just luck. It was just circumstances having nothing to do with skill or insight. And this happens quite a bit. Because as Kihon Waza has its own limitations in its idealization of the training environment, competition in the limitations of individuality 
is also not very telling. Let me say this again. Kihonwaza controlled learning environments employ a kind of universal modality. But in doing so, they take off the table many of the outliers that have huge impact. in real-life applications. And equally, competition in its utilization of individuality ends up subverting itself in a very similar way when we move from the individual back to the universal. Both end up deceiving us It's easy then to say, well, you need both. But sticking to that first principle, everyone says that. Therefore, it's probably not right. And here we have a historical precedent and I think we can use it as a guide I think in Musashi you can see yes both were present but I don't think it's a matter of both I think it is important to determine the sequence and also the ratio. I think we need all of these things. We need the presence we need the sequence and we need to understand the ratio.
the ratio, in my opinion, should prioritize controlled training environments. which is very consistent with Musashi's testament. Because there is a advantage to good form. And here I'm not talking about unarmed ego duels. I'm not talking about social violence. I'm talking about asocial violence. Violence where people kill and murder and die. where weapons are used and where the best you can do is never guarantee victory but increase your odds for achieving it. When you're in that kind of environment, form is going to be very important. When you're not, physical conditioning is important. Natural aggression is important. Form can almost take a back seat to them. But form and sound function in this other kind of environment plays a pivotal role in where the odds are falling. And the fact is that if you stick a student in a live training environment where there's more fog than clarity, what you start to produce and reinforce is a lack of form. As victory, not in terms of insight and understanding, but simply victory over that individual opponent 
becomes more important, the student will start to just produce what I call survival techniques. But the other word for survival technique is crap. It's what functions because of the limitations of that individual. It's what suffices just by the luck of the happenstance and the coincidence of that individual. And only the ignorant goes past that and makes the deduction that having survived that, having beat that, having won against that, that one is actually increasing their overall odds of survival. So form should dominate our training and instructors should be very cautious about producing survival technique or what is better called the lack of form, the absence of sound body mechanics. the unemployment of sound tactics and strategy, the taking advantage of the limitations of the given individual. Because the assumption in training or the very purpose of training is not just to survive but to increase the odds of one's survival and to do that sound form lends itself more than pure physical fitness or raw aggression if you couple these last two things with sound form your odds go way up So this makes Kihon very important, makes drilling very important, micro-drilling very important. But you cannot be a fool and believe that that is all you need. Because you need form amidst the fog of war.
and having form only in controlled environments is as wrong and as inferior and as useless as trying to increase your odds, increase your odds of victory. through physical fitness and raw aggression only. I think a lot of people have made this mistake in Aikido. As there are a lot of people outside of Aikido who are overemphasizing and universalizing the individual, which is oxymoronic. I think outside of Aikido, there's a lot of people overemphasizing the importance of competition and live training environments. But inside Aikido, you have a lot of people giving too much weight and emphasis on idealized controlled training environments. Practicing too much ignorance over the fact that the universal is not the individual. I saw a video yesterday. I don't know if it's true or not, but it still brought about a reflection. The title of the video is something akin to long-time Aikidoka training since five takes on mixed martial artists. So they square off in an ego duel environment that means unarmed, front is established, opponent is established, rules are set, the gap is set. The perimeter is set. The start and go times are set. And the mixed martial artist comes in with a leg kick. Obviously, he could have thrown that kick much harder than he did. You can tell from the body mechanics. But you could tell he was throwing it at a level 
with enough force that he knew it was going to get the attention of the Aikidoka. And right away, you could see in the Aikidoka's body that he has just never been hit. Now, if you are in another art, not like this type of Aikido, you're going to get hit. At first, when you watch beginners get hit, who have never been hit before, it's a shock to their body, their mind. They actually have some sort of startle reflex. It's not severe. It's not one like, you know, they're scared. It's something more akin to... I've seen it in, in divers, in scuba divers. You wear a wetsuit. You get hot on the boat, and this is cold water divers. So, if you're out there and you're you don't even have a wetsuit or a buoyancy compensator, this doesn't apply to you. But there's a kind of shock that happens when people's faces hit the cold water. It takes their breath. They can't help it. They're just not used to it. That's how this guy's body acted. You could see it. It was shock. By I'm I'm using that term colloquially. It was new. It was a new experience. But if you were in another art. You see that too. But it's made part of controlled training environments or part of drilling or micro-drilling. And the presence of that shock told me no matter what this guy says about how he has been hit or what have you, no, he hasn't. And this is not the environment to have your first experience of being hit because that's a survival technique that shock is a survival technique it's not a training or trained response so other arts address this shock in all kinds of ways. Some are very indirect. 
Some are, you're going to hold the kicking shield and we're going to kick the fuck out of it. And you're not going to jam or kick as you try to let your fear manifest itself that way. And you're not going to ride the kick as you let your fear manifest that way. You're just going to stand still, hold that bag tied to your body, stare at that body coming in as fast and as hard as they can. And you're going to suck that kick up. And you have enough there in the foam technology where you're not going to die. But you're going to get used to it. Some arts do it. Via the full speed. Focus. Kihon Waza training. And what happens is every once in a while somebody's focus is off and you just got hit with the blow that's somewhere around 75 to 80%. And through those every once in a while strikes you start getting used to it. Some open this up into beginner level light sparring. Some even go so far as, hey, put your hands behind your back. I don't want you bobbing or weaving or anything. We're just going to hit you everywhere till that shock response is gone. There's all kinds of ways of doing this. We employ all of them at Ascension Center. Because It rarely comes up in straight Kihon Waza training. But some things do come up that I see in this person's body is not there and which is quite common to Aikido. Because you don't, it is one thing true to be hit by another human. There is something unique about human versus human violence. And that will always add some sort of shock spice to having been hit. But the mat. can in many ways at the beginning levels duplicate it, this kind of desensitization. If in your Kihon Waza you stop throwing yourself 
And the requirement is that you get thrown and your survival is dependent upon the skill of your ukemi. Meaning if you don't do the ukemi, you're not going to get up again uninjured. Now the mat is hitting you over and over and over again. So I'd be very surprised if even this level of desensitization was happening. That is how telling that shock was from that first kick. He's not being thrown onto the mat hard enough. Or even at Kihon Waza level, if you're Naga and you're doing a strike, you hit the target. And the reconciliation of that energy is left to Uke and the Ukemi. And of course, the human factor kicks in. You don't get every Ukemi right, and now you got hit. And over the years, over the months, over the hours, you get used to it. It's not like that cold water in the face on your first cold water dive. Or if you're uke and you're in your kihonwaza required to do one of the strikes, if Naga doesn't move, Naga does it wrong, they're going to get hit. They're going to feel it. And they're going to get used to it. So even if you restrict yourself to a kihonwaza, if you are doing it right, with this in mind, we should not see that shock response. Well, from the setup of the video, I think this person, I would not be surprised, let's put it that way, I would not be surprised if this person came into the MMA school and said he wanted to test his stuff. He wanted to test his Aikido against this MMA art form. Well, that's kind of a challenge. So I don't think the MMA guy, and of course this is all speculation, but from the way the body was, the way things were looking, it, it had that middle ground of, I'm going to go pretty hard, but I'm not actually fighting you.
but I'm going to go hard enough where you know you shouldn't have done this. So after the first leg kick, the MMA practitioner comes in and just slaps him across the face. And you get an even bigger startle response. Reinforcing my already offered position. This is all insane to me. This confusion of the universal with the individual and the individual with the universal. It's why the masses hold it. Because it makes sense until you dig deeper like Musashi did. Then it makes no sense. It's just foolishness. And with that foolishness comes a whole other horde of foolishness. The one that always gets me. You can see it if you step back and look at the cultural assumptions in this gentleman's aims and efforts. When he says he wants to test his Aikido, what he really means is he wants to see if Aikido Kihon Waza functions within the particularities of social violence. This is what you see every time somebody says or asks or answers the question, is Aikido practical? They take the assumption that Aikido is captured by its Kihon Waza and they take the assumption, meaning it goes unsaid, that practicality is determined by the particularities of social violence. And what this reveals is two things. One, they do not understand Kihon Waza. And they do not know what Aikido is. And I say this because it is an obvious and early on insight 
در هایکی را کی هموازا is poorly suited for the energy prints and mechanical constructs of your common social violent encounter. What we're seeing here is not the impracticality of Aikido Kihonwaza, but first the ignorance that Aikido is Kihonwaza, is captured by Kihonwaza. And we're also seeing the ignorance of the individual goals of each Aikido Kihonwaza. And these two examples of ignorance are brought about by the caveat we can take from Musashi that we cannot make the mistake of feeling the universal addresses the individual or that the individual addresses the universal. You just have to think it through a little bit more. I think anyone can reach the conclusion Musashi did. Anyone who is willing to go past the masses and their assumptions but it's there for you. If that is difficult, you might find it useful to look at history to like here, let's see what Musashi said. Okay, that's not, in, that's not consistent with what I believe. Let me suspend what I believe right now and let me see why he might be saying that. Or maybe look at the historical evidence on what's the founder's view of Aikido Kihonwaza. What is it? 
What is it, its goal? What is its aim? Maybe the, the times he spoke on what is the art? Because I think if you do both, if you apply sincere reflection or if you look at history for examples, you're going to see that you should not identify the art with its kihon. And you can reach that conclusion without even having to delve, delve into this perhaps complicated philosophy. between the universal and the individual. We need to do that. We need to see through our own assumptions. And especially so, those that we hold in common with everyone else. as those assumptions make us blind, keep us down, make us lesser than we should be. This concludes this episode of Budo the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentiencenter.com. S E N S H I N C E N T E R.com. Or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.